I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Burke Murkison and Michael Granberry, co-authors of the book Hole in the Roof, The Dallas Cowboys, Clint Murkison Jr., and the stadium that changed American sports forever, which came out December 6, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on January 30, 2023. Burke is the son of the original owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Clint Murkison Jr., and Michael is one of the top writers for the Dallas Morning News. Enjoy. So, uh, we want to welcome Burke Murkison, who I've known a long time. Burke is the son of Clint Murkison Jr., the original owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and his collaborator on this effort, Michael Granberry, is one of the top writers for the Dallas Morning News. Most recently, I'm sure many of you saw the great article Michael did on Jerry Levias. Since then, I have talked to about 10 SMU big dogs to encourage them for SMU to get a stadium of Jerry Levias, since he is the Jackie Robinson of the Southwest Conference. So, Michael, great job on that. Thank you. So, uh, anyway, Bert, Michael, welcome to something. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Bert, I'm going to start with you, since the book is so much about your dad. And after reading the book, I now fully support the idea that Clint Murkison Jr., your father, the original owner of the Dallas Cowboys from 1960 to 1984, and the man who created Texas Stadium, deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So the way, absolutely. So, Bert, to lay the groundwork for our conversation this afternoon, what do you regard as his main achievements that caused him to be such a pioneer and a man who enhanced and grew pro football in so many ways? Uh, well, really, I, th I think that there's there's two major contributions that he made. And by the way, I will say... I don't yeah, sorry. Okay. Uh, there are two major contributions. Can you all hear and also like to add that you mentioned the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Well, we've, we've worked the last five or six years to try to, uh, to see him inducted and have, have uh, made some progress. Actually, haven't made much progress in that area, but we've, it's not because we haven't worked at it. I think it, I think it will happen. I don't know when it'll happen, but it'll, hope it'll be within my lifetime and I'll be able to enjoy it. But that said, there were really two, in my mind, there were two major contributions. One was just establishing uh, an NFL pro football team in Dallas, Texas. It took, uh, you know, enormous uh, courage and perseverance for him to do what he did to, to start up a team in spite of uh, Lamar Hunt, a well-funded team with his Texans, starting up an AFL team here. Uh, he went forward with that, and it just, it's, it, it's all covered in the book, but it's a, it really a, an extraordinary feat to do what he did and, and then establish it as one of the premier franchises in the league. Uh, and then second, on top of that, as soon as they, he knew that they were 
He, uh, we're going to be a, get established here in town. He saw Lamar move his team to Kansas City, and he felt so positive about, uh, more positive than about the team making a long term. And he, he, what he did at that point, he he was always just uh, displeased with the Cotton Bowl and its condition. Dallas would never really take care of it. It was falling apart around him and his team and the people out there. And he immediately shifted gears once he felt confident about the Cowboys making it and began to work on a new stadium. And that's the focus of the book. But that would be, those would be the two prime uh, contributions he made in the, in the eventual development and construction of Texas Stadium. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael, the main difference between Clint Murkison Jr. and Jerry Jones as owners of the Dallas Cowboys is that Clint really stayed out of the football business and for the most part limited his role to the state. Whereas Jerry, as we all know, on the other hand, is in the big middle of every aspect of the football business, famously from jocks to socks. So, so why did Clint decide that he was going to draw that line and not get himself involved in the football business? Well, first of all, Talmadge, I want to thank you for the introduction, and I want to thank everybody here. We are touched and flattered that you all came out here today. It's a real honor. Really appreciate it. Um, what is interesting about doing a book like this is that you, you kind of get to study the people in the book psychologically, even psychiatrically to some extent. Um, I think that had, uh, as we note in maybe the earliest part of the book, uh, his father, Clint Sr., had this habit in business where he would pick people that he trusted, that he had faith and confidence in, and let them run whatever enterprise it happened to be. Clint Jr. followed that same um, pattern in, in business, and it was obviously extraordinarily successful for him with the Cowboys. I mean, Tex Schramm, Tom Landry, Gil Brandt, extraordinary people to have working for you. As evidence of that, all three are in the uh, in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, it's two different styles. I don't think you can really say that one is necessarily better than the other. One thing I will say for Jerry, um, you know, at the morning news, this is maybe, I don't mean this to sound morbid, if someone reaches, say, the age of 65 or so and they're a prominent public figure, we write a, uh, we write a, a, a an advance obituary. I don't know who has done the one for Jerry, I just know that there is one. But I think what you, you have to explore with him, and, uh, and, and we do to some extent in the book, is uh, what he did for this, this franchise financially is extraordinary. I mean, not only is the value close to $8 billion, but in many ways he saved the fr franchise financially. It was losing a ton of money when he acquired the team, but of course, the Achilles heel, if you will, is the fact that it's now 27 years and counting, um, you know, for not only a Super Bowl, but an NFC championship game. As Joshua, my youngest of four boys, who is 26, likes to say, he's a bit of a comic, um, uh, the last time the Cowboys were in an NFC championship game, much less a Super Bowl, I was in utero, uh, which is literally true. Right, now, the book has many dramatic parts, particularly going back to the early days, but, but Burke, one of the most dramatic parts was obviously the team was in its fourth season, 1963, 
when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And of course, people all over the country decided they were angry at the whole city. Uh, your book talks about the famous full-page ad, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't take that long for the Dallas Cowboys to all of a sudden changing people's perception and thinking more positively about Dallas, in large part because of the Cowboys. So talk about that process, your perception of it, of how the team and, and, and what it started becoming nationally, how that helped change America's perspective on Dallas in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. The, uh, uh, in, in looking at it, just have to be... Yeah, I used my mic. That was uh, this went off again. Sorry. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, in, in, in looking back uh, at that, you know, in the 63 year, the Cowboys were, were really looking to, they, they hadn't gotten there yet. They were beginning, I think Landry had like a five-year plan or something. And, and they, they hadn't really broken through in terms of success, but they were, they were getting close. And, and really, I think it just happened to be that uh, in those couple of years, uh, you know, after 63, they, they became uh, much more established on the field to begin to win. And 65, they uh, was not a winning year, but it was a 500 year. And that was like just a major breakthrough. And I think when you couple that with uh, just the support that they were able to garner, if you went out, I don't know if you went, I'm sure you did, went out to Cotton Bowl at the time and just see the kind of enthusiasm that, that, that uh, was, was expressed by the fans and by the people out there and things like that. It just, it, there was a wave of enthusiasm and positive feelings. And I think this, in large part, and I think football today is sports, they're, they're kind of like distract people from the day-to-day. And of course, Kennedy assassination is not day-to-day, but I think there was a level of distraction there and it kind of carried, carried through the city and the, the way the city felt about itself. Ahead, yeah, I, I just wanted to I wanted to touch on that as well. Um, that part of the book, for me, we have an entire chapter devoted to the assassination. That part of the book for me was by far the most personal. Uh, I was a sixth grader in Dallas. I was 11 years old, exactly one week away from my 12th birthday when the assassination occurred. And when you're 11 years old and you have to process the fact that a president was assassinated in your hometown, but you also, you also have to hear that your city is the city of hate and your city has been tarnished nationwide and around the world for what happened, for the series of events that happened here. Uh, it, you know, it, it was an incredible, incredibly awful thing for a kid to have to go through. But then three years later, when the Cowboys had their first winning season, obviously I and my peers were a little bit older. It was a wonderful thing. It was almost like they were these um, angels of redemption. I'm, I'm going to tell you one quick story about that shame that was put in place. And we touch on this later in the book when we talk about the roots of cowboy hatred. In 1988, shortly after my wife and I started dating, we went to her cousin's wedding in New York City. And I met her uncle, who is no longer with us and who later became a dear friend of mine. So I'll preface this story by saying that. We had this incredible conversation right after we met. And then he said to me, uh, oh, I forgot to ask, where are you from? He was from New York. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm from Dallas, Texas. And he looked like he had been shot. 
And he said, I, I really wish you hadn't told me that. And I said, why is that? And he literally said, I'll never forgive you people for how you killed Kennedy. And uh, it was... He was not Right, no, no, exactly. Uh, fast forward a year and a half after the Kennedy assassination birth, and the Astrodome opened in Houston. And obviously, uh, when it opened, it was described as the eighth wonder of the world. And your dad, who was already tired of the Cotton Bowl and rundown and so forth, talk about how the opening of the Astrodome inspired him to want to do something bigger and better for North Texas. Yeah, what, what is Mike? You referred to it as Houston Envy, I think. When the, that was, uh, I think that was... Larry McMurtry had that phrase, actually. Yeah, but anyway, so, but Dad, you know, Dad actually had started, uh, it was really when, when uh, uh, Lamar Hunt moved the, the Texans to uh, Kansas City that, that Dad really kind of shifted his focus and began to think about a new home for uh, the Cowboys. And, and whenever he would... I mean, and he was serious about it. When he'd ever go to other other stadiums on the road, he went to almost all those games. He periodically would miss one, but generally went to almost all of them. He made a point of sitting down in the stands with the where the where gen, you know generally the spectators would not at the owner's box or something, because he wanted to experience each of the stadiums for himself, and and, and he garnered from that. He was very a very bright guy. They enjoyed architecture and and. Uh, and so, and so it was really uh, uh, Lamar moving that he knew the Cowboys would be established and he began thinking seriously about a new stadium. The, uh, the, the Astrodome, I don't think it really affected him in terms of what his, his, uh, his goals were. I mean, he saw it, I think he, he admired aspects of it. He said, in, 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 uh, in looking back, he, he stated that, you know, it, it was part of it he didn't really enjoy that much. Uh, he thought that the elements should be part of the, uh, it had like kind of an unnatural environment. And he thought the elements should be part of the game. And so when we, when he took a shot at designing his own stadium, he made sure that occurred. And that's where the, the hole in the roof was actually inspired. So uh, it did play a part, but it wasn't the critical piece that, you know, led to the new stadium. Now, one of the things that was going on in the 60s and the 70s, and we've got Brian Truby over here, he's designed AT&T Stadium, SoFi Stadium, the Vikings Stadium, the Rangers Stadium ballpark, this whole evolutionary uh, process. But one of the things that was going on in the 60s and the 70s, and from a sports fan standpoint, was just wretched, was all these stadiums were built that accommodated both football and baseball. And to me, that was one of the most important things that Clint did, was to say, no, this is just going to be football. So talk about those stadiums and how they didn't work when they tried to combine the two sports compared to Clint's being the one to really early on say, no, a football stadium needs to be for football. Yeah, I, one of the really fun parts of, of, of doing a book like this is the research that you do. You learn so many interesting new things, you know, not only about people but about history. And uh, one of the things that blew me away was uh, in 1966, which was kind of a seminal year in Cowboys history, their first winning season, and the year before Clint asked, announced that he was moving to Irving. The Cotton Bowl, which was built in 1930, was one of the newer stadiums in the league. 
Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Super Bowl-bound Philadelphia Eagles, uh, played in Franklin Field, which was built in the 1800s. And then you had stadiums like Kezar Stadium. You had the, uh, the Bears playing in Wrigley Field, a baseball stadium, the Lions playing in Tiger Stadium. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so it was, uh, you know, Texas Stadium really did um, uh, become the prototype of the, uh, of the modern stadium in, 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 many, in many respects. But there, the one thing that, that was interesting about the fact that Clint was the one who turned the page was he was clearly the first owner to realize that at some point the stadium had to become more than a city-owned rental facility, which would offer such amenities as a hot dog and a Dr. Pepper. It had, to, it had to go a little bit beyond that. And mainly what it had to do was it had to become um, a new revenue stream. He knew at some point, we heard the term visionary a lot, but he was a visionary in that he knew at some point players' salaries were going to explode. And I don't know that he knew how much they were going to explode. Like Drew Pearson, uh, once told me that his starting salary with the Cowboys was 15000 a year. Uh, Dwayne Thomas, the number one draft choice in 1970, his was 20000 a year. As you know, Aaron Judge just signed a contract with the Yankees for, what, $360 million? Um, so there was going... Nine years. Yeah, there was going to... There was going to... There would need to be a new revenue stream at some point uh, and, and because he knew that TV would tap out as well. So he... I think could see all of these things. Plus, I think he also wanted a stadium that was uh, more comfortable and pleasurable uh, for the fans. Like if you read a lot of other books that have been written about the Cowboys, one of the criticisms, uh, there's this buzzword, uh, they, they, they say he was guilty of stratification, right? That he added, a, he added an element of stratification to the, to the experience where it's true that the Cotton Bowl was a wonderfully egalitarian experience for everybody. But we didn't, we found that that really wasn't true. There were 65,000 seats in Texas Stadium and we, you know, we added up the number of uh, suites and how many seats were in each suite and it comes out to about 2,000 seats. So 63,000 seats were sort of normal suites, but those 2,000, something like that, right? And in those 2,000 seats that were in the suites, uh, helped him finance, what, a third of the stadium? Right. So so there was an economic element there that was pretty hard to dispute. So, so Bert, talk about, you know, your dad comes home, he's building a new stadium. He starts talking about luxury suites, which actually were in the Astrodome, one of the first stadiums. But there's this whole new vision for a stadium. As Michael says, it's not just a place to go watch a football. It's a place to, you know, wear expensive clothes and... and wine and dine, expensive food, etc. What was your response to thinking about how new and, and different and much better this new stadium was going to be? Well, it's just incredible. I remember going out when it first opened, and, and you could look back and see pictures of this thing. And, and you can see pictures of this thing. And, and uh, it was just pristine. It was just, it was kind of crazy. It's like, I remember when the Cowboys first started playing out there, uh, they were out for, for like a pregame workout or something the day before, and uh, 
Bob Lilly was there and he, he turned to one of his fellow players and goes, can you spit on the turf here? I mean, it was like, it felt like you're in your living room or something. But it was like, but the whole thing with dad was he wanted, he wanted to make it a special experience for the spectator. He wanted a you know, reasonably priced ticket, reasonably par priced parking, uh, easy access to your seats. They had elevators that would take you up. Uh, our escalators take you up to the upper decks and all this, and so it was all fan-friendly kind of thing, and he thought that, that, that the fan really needed to be catered to as much as possible if you wanted them to come out on a regular basis. Yeah. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was Clay Ferguson wanted to keep the team in Dallas. In fact, he wanted to be on the site where we currently have the Omni Convention Center Hotel, I thought Tom Leppard was going to be here today, who's the person responsible for the Omni Convention Center of Job. We got tied up. But, but Michael, talk about why the Cowboys did not stay in Dallas and instead opted for Irving. Well, you know, in some respects, you, you, you have to go back to the assassination and the history of the city. Uh, in the aftermath of the assassination, the, the various city leaders felt that Eric Johnson um, you know, this extraordinarily bright man, a man of great achievement, would be the best new mayor. And, and his vision was truly remarkable and extraordinary. I mean, many people say that he is the best mayor in the city's history. Pretty hard to dispute that. Well, no, no, he wasn't. And, and, you know, he, I mean, you know, you think of his, the achievements that his fingerprints are on. I mean, DFW Airport, which, which transformed the region and the Central Library and the IMP designed City Hall, the Community College District. But he did not, as far as we could tell, he had never been to a single football game, much less a Cowboys game. He had no interest in a stadium. Uh, I don't think he even had an interest in, in you know, revamping the Cotton Bowl so that it could could be agreeable to everyone. What, what kind of saddens me about the whole thing is that, you know, you had Mr. Mayor Johnson along with his chief ally, Robert Cullum, just kind of decided this big issue for themselves without really thinking of, of what would be best for the city. We had this uh, 50th anniversary uh, observance of the Kennedy assassination. The Morning News hosted that. People like Lawrence Wright were there. It was, yeah, it was quite an event. Well, anyway, uh, but one of the people pointed out that for 50 years after the assassination, downtown was essentially a ghost town. And obviously that would have been quite different if you, Clint not only wanted the Cowboy Stadium downtown, a state-of-the-art stadium, he also wanted to move the arts downtown and as you know i've been the arts writer at the morning news since 2006 so this was amusing to me they basically said oh no the arts will never leave fair park you can forget that well 1984 the dallas museum of fine arts becomes the dallas museum of art and that kind of begins an exodus of the of the arts uh, to downtown so you know, timing is everything, right? And they did not want to play along, so he was really not left with uh, any choice except to move. I will say, though, for all of us, it was a great thing that he only moved to a suburb a mile from the city limits. It wasn't a Walter O'Malley situation where he, he moved all the way across the country. And, uh, uh, but, it, but, in the, but, but it has a parallel to that because Robert Moses, who was not even the mayor of New York, decided 
where things were going to be in New York, and, and he did not want uh, the new Dodgers stadium to be where the Dodgers own, owner wanted it, and that led to a massive split. Now they're serving the dessert, so y'all are sitting here listening to this wonderful program, but you need to be passing the dessert around the table so that everybody <laughs> can enjoy their dessert. Now, one of the most fun parts of the book, a story I have never heard before, Burke, was in 1967, there was a Dallas stripper named Bubbles Cash. And Bubbles Cash decided to come to a Dallas Cowboy game wearing what shall we say was a rather skimpy outfit. And there were all kinds of pictures taken that kind of went viral. And, and uh, what was Tech Schramm's response to that? Yeah, this was funny. This was a game, I think, in, in sometimes like, in the, well, it was the 60s. You've got to talk in the mic. Okay, it's, sorry, I'm having trouble with this. I'm slow. But, but uh, anyway, he, uh, uh, it was a 67 regular season game, and, and Bubbles uh, was a local uh, burlesque dancer, stripper, whatever, and uh, she was trying to get some attention, and so she wore a uh, leopard skin uh, uh, mini skirt, and and she carried two. I'm going to get kind of graphic here, maybe, but carried two uh, cones of uh, of candy. Uh, what do you call it? It's, uh, cotton candy. Cotton candy in front of each. And then they began to began to sway down the down the aisle, heading for the field, and. Everybody just went nuts as they walked down and just like standing up and laughing and and even apparently Meredith, Meredith and the team were in a huddle and they all they heard this commotion and they turned around. They all looked up in the stands to see what happened. And and obviously just calls this, uh, she was after personal uh, notoriety, but uh, it caused this, this, after, you know, this effect and Afterwards, uh, Tex was friends with uh, Mitch Lewis Sr., who was the PR executive for the Cowboys early on, close with Dad, and they were having drinks and stuff. And Mitch himself suggested that uh, he, he had noticed this all this uproar, and he suggested to Shram that he needed to incorporate some of that sexiness into the into the uh, the cheerleaders, and and that got Tex moving. And, and Tex was a real. He was a great uh, showman and a great merchandiser and, and just jumped in. And, and one, of the, one of the best lines in the book, Tech Schramm saw this bubbles cash and said, I think I can make money off of this. <laughs> <laughs> now, it didn't take long. Uh, once Texas Stadium was up and we had the luxury boxes and, and so on and so forth, but the value of Texas Stadium exceeded the value of the franchise. So, Michael, talk about that, that process and why all of a sudden the stadium was worth more than the team. Well, again, that was, that was a key turning point. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, the stadium began to be a, a source of revenue, but, uh, but, 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 but as a journalist, one of the things that I greatly appreciated about Burke's dad is that he never took a penny from taxpayers. I mean, people are amazed by this when we point this out to them, but he never did. Um, uh, the new stadium in Buffalo, which I believe will be an outdoor stadium, 1.5 billion, will be funded largely by taxpayers. Um, but, but it really was a turning point. I mean, it, it was an economic instrument. And, and one of the things I think that, that Clint uh, 
the rules did not change uh, regarding sponsorships, did not really change under his tenure, but I think he felt that the stadium could have, uh, could open up a door to sponsorships that could benefit the team. And of course, as we note in the book, Mr. Jones sold the NFL, I mean, sued the NFL over this uh, issue surrounding sponsorships, right? And, and then he ultimately won, and that became uh, a great source of revenue for, uh, for owners all over the league. Yep. Now, I came to town in 1978, and that was kind of at the end of the Cowboys' run. They'd been to uh, five Super Bowls. Uh, they'd won two of them. They were America's team. Roger Staubach was Captain America. And then all of a sudden, by 1984, Clint Merkson decides he's got to sell the Cowboys. So, Burke... Talk about the circumstances that led to your dad's deciding he needed to sell the team. Oh, he, he uh, <clears throat> in that period, starting in the early 80s, uh, he, well, became quite ill, number one, and he had a, uh, uh, a, a disease that affected his, uh, his neurology, kind of, and, and he lost, began to lose the ability to, uh, to walk and to talk, and it was something like ALS, but it's another name, but... So it was a very difficult time, and then also uh, with rising interest rates and whatnot, he was, he was always over-leveraged, uh, as was Texas Stadium, and it just it grew to be a point that, uh, you know, he was, he was just caused to, uh, it was something that was, uh, he needed to do in order to address his financial uh, uh, problems and whatnot, and uh, so that's essentially it. And obviously we know that one of Major League Sports franchises for sale, there's no assurance that it'll be bought by somebody who's going to keep the team in North Texas. So, Michael, talk about that process from your research, uh, the, the search for the buyer, what the criteria was, and how Bum Bright ended up with it. Well, I think the, the main thing that Clint Jr. was concerned about was keeping the team in the Dallas area. He wanted very much to do that. And there were a number of people they considered, but that was, I think that was criteria number one. He wanted uh, to keep the, the team here. And, and obviously it would have been devastating if, I mean, I spent 19 years at the Los Angeles Times. I was in the San Diego Bureau. And even though that team only moved 120 miles away, that, was, that is absolutely devastating for the city of San Diego. They, they were loyal fans of that team. They sold out the games. And uh, my oldest son, uh, all four of my boys were actually born in San Diego, but my oldest son hates the Chargers with a passion now. And I, I think that would have been really an awful thing uh, for Dallas if that had happened. And then Bob Bright only on the team five years before he sold it. Uh, why, why was he the owner for really such a short period of time in the grand scheme of things since Clint had it for 25 years and Jerry has now had it for... 34 years, why was it right running such a short one? Well, he was also having financial trouble as well. Um, the savings and loan uh, situation uh, occurred. Uh, uh, <laughs> what was your line about that? For a while, the uh, FDIC actually partially owned the Cowboys. Yeah, they, you know, he set up a uh, partnership, limited partnership. He was set up a limited partnership. He was the... Uh, GP and 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 only owned uh, during that time I think like 17 percent of the team he had he had 10 other uh, 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 including him there was 10 other uh, uh, limited partners and 
two of them, uh, unfortunately, during that time was the great, you know, kind of Texas recession, depression thing with the real estate and rising uh, uh, interest rates out of control and whatnot, and oil and gas going to hell. It was just such a tough time, and uh, and two of the two of the limited partners uh, actually uh, lost their stock, and it was uh, foreclosed on by the FDIC. And some some wise some wise ass made the comment that now it's truly America's team. <laughs> And we all know that Bumbright sold the team to uh, Jerry Johnson, the Cowboys, and it didn't take long for Jerry to realize, as you all say, to, to take this stadium revenue and give it steroids and send it into Never Never Land, where it's now worth $8 billion. He was going to need the new stadium designed by Brian and his team over here. So uh, talk about uh, what the Jones ownership has meant both to the Cowboys and to the to the stadium that accommodates them. Well, the brand is extraordinary. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, the you know the star in Frisco, which actually costs more than AT and T Stadium, is uh, you know an incredible manifestation of the brand. Um, they still uh, average ninety thousand fans, you know, for every home game. Uh, they were even averaging a, a thirteen teams, as we say in the book, had zero attendance during the pandemic, 13, zero. And they still had quite a few fans that went to uh, went to the games during the pandemic. Um, we even had the Rose Bowl at AT&T Stadium. Uh, no, the brand is extraordinary, but again, it's what we, we go back to what we talked about earlier. The problem is, um, is, is what has gone, what has happened on the field the last, nearly the last 30 years is in some sharp contrast. And it's not that they're terrible. I mean, they have made the playoffs quite a few times. They, the last few years in particular, they've had quite a few incredibly good draft choices, but they just don't seem to be able to get over that hump psychologically or athletically. By the way, as journalists, we love to make news whenever we can. So uh, there was some cowboy kind of, kind of indirectly related to the Cowboys just before we came up here. Kellen Moore already has a new job. He is the offensive coordinator of the team I used to cover that I still call the San Diego Chargers. Um, so he may be in the Super Bowl before we are, right? I, I wouldn't doubt it. For my last question, we have a couple from the audience. Berg, on uh, April 11, 2010, Texas Stadium was imploded. Talk about your personal thoughts, knowing what that stadium had meant to your dad, the whole history you had with it, what, what our whole area had with it. What went through your mind knowing that it was not going to be around anymore? Yeah, it happened then. I actually went to the the ceremony, the, the ceremony, but they had it was like a carnival type type atmosphere out there, and there was a there were tents with dignitaries there. Jerry Jones and a couple of his family members even came out, and and there when you saw it go down, I mean there was. Uh, there was just an empty feeling, and that that continued. I remember uh, subsequently once they cleared the site and were just sitting there, uh, driving by it as I, I would going out the airport or wherever it's assertion, you know, 114 or 183, and you drive by, and and my thought, the thought that went went through my mind at the time is like, this was a part of Dallas, and it doesn't exist anymore, and people are going to forget about this thing, and that's really. Uh, 
it motivated me to begin to work and, and, and try to put this, uh, this book together as a testimony to uh, the Cowboys to Dad. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it's been a, uh, and, and Mike, work is, with Mike has been wonderful. He should brought, it's, it's an incredible book. And, and, and uh, Mike has given it real life. And uh, I'm so pleased to be here and be honored in this way, but thank you. Great. Does anybody have a question or two? Yes, Jim. So, uh, I guess you both can weigh in on this. What would your dad think about the salary escalations? For example, Dak Prescott's guaranteed $98 million over the next two years. In my opinion, pretty average. Um, what would he, and, and would he think that eventually this bubble is going to burst? Um. You know, I, you know, in, in, I, I couldn't really respond to that in, a, in a, you know, in, 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 with accuracy exactly. But I do know, and Mike has touched on this when he looked at developing the stadium, uh, the management of the stadium, Texas Stadium Corp, and developing the sta Texas Stadium itself as a as a uh, profit center. I think he saw that there were there was you know there was going to be this ongoing need for for cash among these teams in order to afford the type of uh, the type of inflation that was going on just with regard to salaries and just everything else and and but I mean it's it you're right it does boggle the, the mind the imagination almost and of course there is a salary cap so it's you know, like one team is going in and never never Bruce you have a question <clears throat> can you stand up just so everybody can hear you <laughs> My father was a, he was quite a character with those 1960 season ticket, Charger season ticket holder. And it really burned him when Tex was out front talking about this new stadium and they had $250 bonds. Oh, no. He talked as though it was going to break him and, and the like. He was, he was so funny. He, had, he made the comment about the Astrodome being this new thing. My father went to his grave referring to the hole in the roof. Referring to Texas Stadium, never called Texas Stadium. He called it the half assed <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Bruce. <laughs> oh, uh, Talmadge, may I? I wanted to just say one thing that uh, before we get away here, and I don't think I've ever said this to you before, but one of the uh, one of the neat things, not only getting to know Burke was great, but but also one of the things that came through. We started working on this in 2011, but one of the things that came through uh, was Burke really loved, loves his father. And I hope that comes through in the book. And, uh, you know, this, uh, and this is also an experience, the Cowboys are an experience that I shared with my father. I mean, one of the things I loved about the Cotton Bowl, we loved both stadiums, but, you know, I was of the age uh, when we, Dad and I started going to the games together in 1960 when I was in the third grade. I feel like I got to know my dad going to Cowboy games at the Cotton Bowl. And I, I recently met up a bunch, a bunch of high school friends at a 50, 50th anniversary celebration, and they all said the same thing. They said, those Cowboy games at the Cotton Bowl is where we got to know our fathers. And then that, you know, that same experience with our families continued on at, at Texas. It's kind of, in other words, the, the Cowboys, you know, it's like a member of the family that you both curse and praise, right? I mean, but they're interwoven into our family's experiences, and that's, that's really one of the coolest things yeah, about it. If I, if I could add something to it, that's with, with respect to your remark about the, 
seat option bonds and the cost of the bonds. And I mean, dad, you know, he knew there was going to be pushback from people. And in uh, everything back then, it was, it's like another world. Everything was so inexpensive and whatnot. But when he, when he set about setting the prices and of the bonds and the tickets and all that, you know, they had to demonstrate that the, the uh, uh, stadium could, could, could uh, afford the, the, the bond issue and, and services and whatnot. And, but they were really going out of the way to keep the prices down as much as possible. The, uh, the original reserve uh, the ticket uh, prices for reserve tickets were like $6 each. I know they ran numbers for parking at a dollar a car. They they were they were forced in order to enhance the cash flow to to, to increase it to two dollars. Uh, I mean it's it, in 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 respect to the bonds themselves they were two hundred fifty dollars uh, per seat outside the thirties and a thousand dollars a seat inside the thirties for bonds at two fifty each, and 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 even there they offered they worked with the first Na first national bank to offer a finance package it was fifty dollars down. Just for a two hundred fifty dollar bond, for fifty dollars down, and I think it was nine dollars a uh, a month for three years or something. I mean, it was insane, but I mean, it. He was very conscious of the pushback that people would have, and he 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 wanted to. Uh, anyway, he he wanted to uh, he wanted as many people to afford this experience as they as they could, you know, as possibly could be. After reading Burke Murkison and Michael Granberry's terrific new book, Hole in the Roof, it made me realize that, one, Clint Murkison Jr. should be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and two, Texas Stadium was truly a game-changing venue for American sports. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.